continuing our study, really getting close to the end of it now. We've been uh, in this for the past two months, and here we are in August. Um, got some of our students that are already moving back in, and so keep them in your prayers. Um, got some sports teams, uh, band, and some other things coming in uh, this weekend, but also over the next two weeks uh, with our freshmen coming in on the 13th. So keep all them in your prayers. Uh, we'll keep you updated as uh, some things are going to be coming up of what we're going to be doing with our college ministry and some uh, things. We're going to try and bring back Adopt-A-Student, just so you guys know and uh, advertise that to you all as well. But more information will be coming out about it. But keep them in your prayers. Um, as we're looking at this, uh, and recall too that um, the last two Sundays of the month, I will be in the college class. So I think John is going to be doing a two-part series in here on Jude. I don't know, but we'll see how that works out. Um, I think that's what's going to be happening. So we've been looking at this idea of the Old Testament and how that impacts where we are in our lives today and also how we are going to proceed into the New Testament. And I was talking to Mark this morning. He came up to me and he said, uh, are we into the New Testament yet? Almost. And that's why we are uh, looking at the old into the new. We are almost there. And I'm going to talk about it, but we're not actually going to get there until next week. And we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about the, uh, the law and then um, consider also what Paul does with it. And then we'll wrap everything up. But we're building up to it, and we're focusing on something very important here. Um, our continual study of thinking about the nature of God. And if we understand God's nature, we're going to understand what he's asking of us. And this is really cool as we're looking at this topic today. We're really going to condense down the Old Testament. Um, we're going to find a line of thought through the Old Testament and show how there was this digression from the Old Testament law and how that impacted what they were going through in the Old Testament. So if we can take that whole story, narrow it down, and just focus on their departure from the law, that's going to set us up very nicely to come into the New Testament, understand how Jesus establishes something that fixed the problem that the Jews were experiencing concerning the law. So that's what we're going to be looking at uh, today and what we're trying to set up. Going into this, I was thinking about this question, and I uh, just kind of want to have it in the forefront of your mind. The Old Testament, is it less than, greater, or equal to the New Testament? Um, I hope over the course of what we've been studying so far that you have a new appreciation for what the Old Testament really has to offer. Especially as we consider the, the nature of God. And if we love God, we're going to do whatever He asks us to do. And we know that we are no longer underneath the Old Testament, that, but it was given for some kind of reason. And there are a lot of great things in there that shore up what God was trying to establish so that when we get to the New Testament, he gets to look at us as his children and said, I, I told you so. All the things I told you in the Old Testament, all the slaps on the wrist, all the, the strict regulations, all these things were to lead you over to something really important so you could easily digest what Jesus is going to be saying. And the line that we're going to be considering today is thinking about the word of God and how they departed from it and how there's this coming back to it. And when you think of the time of Jesus where we're going to be next week, that he is the word of God become flesh. Taking the word of God and putting on flesh so that when we see Jesus, we see God. Those are things that we're going to be looking at. As you think about this question, uh, and you may have some comments as we go on, there's going to be quite a few verses we're looking at and picking up a little bit from last week as well. But is the Old Testament less than, greater, or equal to? People want to draw a, uh, a dividing line between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. I think, oh, you know, God, he had all these strict laws and he was just, you know, vengeful and wrathful and jealous. And then we get to the New Testament, he's all love. And, and we don't want to use those same kind of descriptions, all those same kind of concerns 
that we had underneath here. We want to have something completely different. But God is consistent. And as he's bringing in the New Testament, there is still this background story that we need to think about how all these things lead to where we are. It's not this complete different God. And it's not this complete separation. All of the things in the Old Testament undergird what we see in the New Testament itself. And uh, I've been teaching a class online at Faulkner, and it's been focusing on the New Testament. And, uh, of course, making connections all the way through, especially as we got to the book of Acts and thinking about what Paul taught. And I had quite a number of students that were commenting back in some of our discussion posts that we had where they, they said, you know, I thought there was this great divide, but now I'm starting to see all these connections, especially from where they studied the Old Testament, how it makes sense into the New for them in their context. And a lot of them have not even read the New Testament before. This was a new introduction to them, and, and they thought that it was a two-separate idea, but it was like, oh, no, all these things actually pointed to Jesus. So when Jesus came on the scene, you had all the evidence, all the witnesses you need to know that Jesus is the Messiah that God had prophesied about early on, and it all makes sense. So picking up from where we were last week, um, we went back to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. We were thinking about all of these regulations um, in the principles that we established previously, about how the, all these things added up to our appreciation of the Ten Commandments being foundational and then going from there into the rest of the Word of God. The introduction to the Word in Deuteronomy chapter 4, 12 through 14, we we're talking about the Ten Commandments themselves. They're the basic principles. In verse 13, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on tablets of stone. When the people of Israel, when the children of Israel, when they came to Mount Sinai and they were receiving all these teachings from God, the original Ten Commandments that then were explained further, those were given by God, written by His hand. And they had two copies of them, you know, because uh, Moses broke them out of anger, and then they got some more. And we know that whole story, but then we kind of rushed through that last part of Deuteronomy chapter 5. And that's why I wanted to revisit this idea, because it's going to be very important for where we're going today. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting in verse 22, we're back at the mountain. If you want a New Testament example of what we're going to be reading here, go read Hebrews chapter 10. It's going to bring you back to the mountain, back to the Word of God, and it's going to talk about how those people were witnessing all of these things. They were hearing sounds. They were, they were seeing fire in front of them. They were seeing all these great deeds. And, and they, were, you know, they were so scared that uh, they even had the commandment of don't allow any animal to touch the brink of the mountain because if anything goes onto this mountain, it's going to be killed. They're hearing the voice of God. They're hearing all these things in front of them and they're intimidated. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting in verse 22, it says, These words the Lord spoke to all the assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness, with a loud voice. And he added... To it no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, stone and gave them to me. So Moses is reiterating this and he's saying, when we were at the mountain, you heard the voice of God from the mountain, from the fire, all these things, and he gave them to us and we have these Ten Commandments. And what was the people's response to having this intimidating moment? What did they say? This brings us to our next verse that we rushed through at the very end. I want to take a slow moment as we continue on. Starting in verse 23. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and all your elders. And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Pay attention to verse 25. Now therefore, why should we die? 
For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and still have lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. Did you catch what they are saying? That was terrifying. We heard the voice of God. We saw the Ten Commandments. We saw everything you brought down. We're terrified. And anybody that's heard the voice of God, especially out of a fire, they're going to be destroyed. Moses, you go talk to him, and you come and tell us. They're already setting up this idea of God's revealed will as he is giving out teachings that it's really setting up how they're shared to us. When you go through the entire Bible, you find prophets speaking on behalf of God. When you get to the New Testament, we have the Son of God speaking on God's behalf. No longer do we hear the voice of God giving out these things, but He has set up a chain of command and passed them along. We think about Jesus and the apostles and then the written Word of God that we get to trust. I thought this was so interesting, going from the Ten Commandments, how the people heard them, but then the rest of the commandments being passed down by someone that was willing to share them, specifically Moses as he was speaking with God. And that brings us up to speed of what I was wanting to address today and then further on from here. When we get to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, starting in verse 24, and if that text is too small, I think you should be able to see it, but... As Moses is finishing up, receiving all the commandments, all the things that we find in the old law, this is what it said. When Moses had finished writing the words of the law in a book to the very end. All right, so a couple of things to note here. The word of God, written in a book to its very end. He brought it to a pause of where he was. All right, so this is going to be important as we continue on. Verse 25, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law, underline that, the book of the law, and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. Now, as you go through the, the Old Testament, and start looking at stories about where things are in relation to the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we talk about the three main things that were in there, a jar of manna, Aaron's staff, and uh, the copies of the Ten Commandments. When you look at the law, it was right there next to it. There's actually some times you read through the Old Testament where I'll talk about maybe some things missing from inside of the Ark. And then, you know, now, where's the Ark of the Covenant? And all those kind of things that the people of God didn't really handle it correctly. And we find some destruction of it later on that they just were not taking care of it. Destruction as in um, what happens when they would touch it or what happens when the Ark of the Covenant ended up in the town of the Philistines and what happened to the Philistines. Uh, you can go read about those things. But the Word of God, the, the book of the law was next to it. Verse 27, For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Moses has been speaking to God and to the people, being this mediator, trying to teach them and lead them along, and they depended on Moses. And of course, why would they not? Because of his close connection with God. And we're going to see a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that illustrates this even further. But he's saying, look, when I'm out of the picture, because you guys have been depending on me, what is your faith going to look like? How easily are you going to trust God if I've had to carry you along as these little children almost? You've been rebellious. Verse 28, Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in the ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. Heaven and earth as witness. If you want to start thinking about Matthew chapter 5, about heaven and earth passing away and the, the word of God still remaining, these old teachings... This idea of witness and uh, Moses bringing it all into one picture. He said, these things are all in front of you at this time. Verse 29. 
For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. One section that we focused on was the blessings and the cursings. Deuteronomy chapter 28 specifically. If you will follow God and you'll do what he tells you to do, he's going to take care of you. If you don't, things are going to look really bad for you. The land is not going to yield its fruit. You're not going to be able to defeat your enemy. Your homes are going to be taken from you. All these things are going to be really bad. And Moses is looking and he knows you guys have a rebellious heart. You have not fixed the heart problem. One of the keys to understanding the Old Testament law and the Bible at large and God and his nature is that you've got to get the heart right. If the heart is not actually connected to God and wanting to love him and do whatever he asks, then it doesn't matter what God asks you to do. You're not going to do it. You have to be in sync with it. And so as he's telling them this, he's like, look, I'm about to die. And you guys are going to depart because your heart is not where it needs to be. And this is what we're told about Moses when he dies. Flip to the very last thing that we get from Deuteronomy chapter 34. It gives this description of the death of Moses, where he's located. You actually read the book of Jude. You find some uh, discussions about that. And that's not what I want to deal with this morning. I want to pick up in verse 7. This is kind of the, um, the eulogy it tells us about Moses. Verse 7, Moses was 120 years old when he died. Remember, there's the four-part section of his life. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years um, in, uh, as a uh, shepherd, and 40 years uh, with the Israelites. So easy breakdown there. When he died, his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. I mean, at this point, he is still just as strong, just as resolute. To be able to bear the Israelites for this long, you had to have some extra strength coming from God, especially as a 120-year-old. Verse 8, And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. As we see the word of God being passed from person to person, this phrase, the laying on of hands, does that mean anything to us? in the book of Acts. When we go from Jesus dying, uh, being resurrected, spending 40 days with the apostles after his resurrection, he leaves, the Spirit comes to take care of the apostles, and how are they being taken care of? And how does God bear witness along with them? They would pass on the, the, the Spirit, the apostles specifically, the gifts of the Spirit by the laying on of their hands. It's just a, this nice line of succession here. And that's what's happening between Moses and into Joshua. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all the servants and to all the land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. There has been no one else like Moses. But what were the people of Israel supposed to look for? Someone like Moses. See, Moses had these conversations with God that nobody wanted to have. They didn't want to have to sit in front of God face to face because that's intimidating. They heard Ten Commandments from the fiery mountain. They said, well, we want no more. You go and find all these things and you tell us. And that's what we're going to obey. And Moses shored all that up when he would come to speak. He had all these signs, all these wonders, great deeds. And it was working along with the terror that they were experiencing to keep them in check. Moses is gone. Who are they going to depend on? Are they going to depend on a person? Or are they going to depend on the word of God that is stable that was given to them? Do you see what's happening here? 
Do you see the danger that's going to be coming from this? Is that they are going to depart from the Word of God. And it all comes back into a full picture when you get to the New Testament when Jesus is the Word of God in flesh. If you look at John chapter 1 where it tells us that, we get that Jesus was the Word because the Word was in the beginning with God and the Word was God, John 1, 1 through 2. Then you jump down to verse 14 and it talks about the Word becoming flesh. Go to verse 16. It talks about Him being in the presence of God and speaking from God. When you see Jesus, you see God. You see the Word of God being lived out. Not only do we go back to a picture like Moses, but we go in a more close connection to God, God Himself. And you can pick up on this um, back in... And I should have had the verse up for you. There's what we've been reading together. Uh, but I, uh, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, here's what we know about Moses and his relationship to God. And we won't read the, the full passage, uh, but just take note of this. And you can see even in the heading, uh, I know the ESV has it, it says, a new prophet like Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22, here's some things that you will notice about who Moses is, but also this new prophet that is going to come. And so the Israelites are looking for this. They know when Moses dies, who's going to come after him? It's got to be somebody. Somebody's going to be doing this because God has already talked about it. Here's what he's going to look like. He's going to be raised up by God. You're going to know who he is because God's going to say, that is my anointed one. That is the one I'm looking for. He's going to be from among your brothers, from your kindred. So they're even having this in-house conversation about, okay, if we know that he's going to come from Abraham and that lineage all the way down, um, from Israel, we're going to be looking among ourselves. John 1, uh, verse 15 he came to his own, his own did not receive. Jesus comes as God to speak to us, to show us what we should do. God's words. Not with the words that he has made up, but anything he hears from the Father, he shares with us. And then he teaches the apostles. The apostles taught us, and we get to reflect back on that today. And then there's going to be this divine validation. How did you know that Moses was from God? How many people challenged the authority of Moses in the wilderness? And what happened when they challenged Moses and Aaron? The earth opened up and swallowed them whole. You don't mess with that. That's a, if you want to know that these people are in charge, let me show you how this works. And there's one instance with Korah and that rebellion. But there's a lot of other times as well where Moses was validated by God and you knew that he was in charge. When Jesus comes on the scene and people start questioning him, like, who are you to speak to us? Who put you in authority? Because your words have authority. They are making calls. They're making claims. Who are you to be in the place of authority? Well, if I do a miracle, would that tell you where this comes from? And they'll come back and they'll say, well, that comes from the power of Satan. That, that's clearly what's going on here. For you to have that power, that has to be from Satan. And Jesus says, if Satan cast out Satan then his house is divided, and who would be doing that? Wouldn't you want the house to be stronger, but it's actually negating it? So that doesn't make logical sense at all. So where do the teachings come from? They come from God, or they come from man? If they came from man, then how do you explain the miracles that he was doing? And the ultimate miracle is the resurrection. If Jesus is raised from the dead, then all the things that he preached are true, that God approved. And if we continue to preach what Jesus taught, and that the resurrection happened, then our message is validated. Because if the resurrection didn't happen, all of it's in vain. 
Do you see how this all relates together? Do you see how it all builds us up for this case of what the New Testament looks like and how we should depend on the Word of God? And God has made it intentionally uh, um, you know, right in front of us to see these things and to know them. So you look at Moses, and the people were all caught up in like, if Moses is out of the scene, and we know we're looking for a prophet, who's going to be the next one? They want the next person in line to be the solution. That may not be the case. So here's what we know about Joshua. All right, and this is where we're going to skip through the, the Bible. So hold on, we're going to be looking at a lot. Joshua, we know that he's the next one to come after Moses. And he did a lot of great things. But he didn't finish everything. He did what he could in his time, but he is a man and he died. At the end of his life, we get that uh, you know, beautiful verse that we look at in Joshua chapter 24, you know, where he says, Look, you're gonna have to make a decision. Who are you gonna serve? You're gonna serve these gods, or you're gonna serve the true God. He says, As for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. So he says that, and he establishes that, and he said, Look, this is what we're gonna do, this is what I've taught my children to do, but what will you do? In Joshua chapter 24, starting in verse 24, the people respond back to Joshua and his challenge. And they say to him, the Lord our God, we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. Statutes and rules, those are our terms, right? And all those things fit under the umbrella of God's command, ultimate command that we should love. Verse 26, and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. You know, people want to get all caught up in, you know, how did Moses record his death? Well, we, we find Joshua and others continuing on writing the Word of God, being inspired by the Word of God. And so we have the book of the law, and Joshua's recording these things and continuing on that being approved by God, and he's taking all these teachings from him. We know that. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he has spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. So he said, look, we've taught all these words over and over again. This stone is going to serve as a witness. When you stop by, right, the earth itself stands as a witness to what God has done. And we use that in apologetic arguments. We use that to point the way to God. But, you know, if you were going to turn it around maybe in a more modern sense, think about how many lessons this pulpit has heard. The, the number of sermons that have been preached, Bible classes, even conversations in, in funerals and marriages. How many, how many sermons has this pulpit heard? It serves as a witness of a sense to think about all the times that the Word of God has been revealed. And we have to look at ourselves revealed here, shared from there. You think about, are we following it or not? How many sermons, if you count up how many you've heard in your life, and we still rebel, we fall short, but the goal is to turn our heart to God. And the pattern that we see the Israelites struggling with over and over again, they had to line everything up. They were missing something very vital. And so as you go through the story, you go from Moses to Joshua. And the people say, look, we want to obey the voice of the Lord. I almost hate to turn the page at the end of Joshua, don't you? Because what comes next? What book comes right after that? Judges. Oh, Israelites, what are you doing? This you get, I mean, it's a it's a cycle that you get caught up in in the book of Judges, and what happens? They're listening to the voice of the Lord, and then they turn away and they start doing evil. So God comes in and he punishes them. 
And then a judge rises up to help them, and they come back and they say, we want to serve the voice of the Lord. And just over and over again, you're caught in this, this cyclone. You keep reciprocating and coming back around. I hate to turn the page from Joshua because everything seems fine, and then they start disobeying. And here's what we learn about that whole process. Go to Judges chapter 2. It's kind of uh, the, the way that these books are written. Um, some parts of them are out of sync, as in it's going to give you some information, but then it's going to backtrack just a little bit. So we're going to put them in line real quick and look at Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 6, and we'll go back to verse 1. So just know that's happening. Let me get there with you as well. Okay. Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, so he told them, look, all right, here's the decision that we've made. You said you're going to obey the voice of the Lord. This is great. You go to your inheritance. You have land allotted to you, and you keep all of the uh, impurities out of there, and you serve the Lord, and you do what he tells you to do. He dismissed the people. People of Israel went to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. I thought that was neat. I never noticed that. I thought it was just like as soon as Joshua was out of the way. But there were people that came after Joshua, not to the same extent as him, but these elders that were leading the people, making decisions. He had already prepared them. Moses prepared these elders to know these words that they would teach their tribes and their, their family units and all of these. They did a really good job for a while after Joshua, who had, been seen, uh, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done to Israel. Verse 8. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of the inheritance in the country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, as in they died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the word that the Lord had done for Israel. That's why I hate turning the page from Joshua over to this. One generation away. I love generational studies. I like looking at uh, groups of people and how they change over time. And I can't tell you the, the number of posts that I've seen on uh, Facebook and other social media where it talks about you know what one nation, what one generation embraces the next, and how they interact with it. And if this person starts you know going away from God, then the next generation, the next generation. We see this over and over again in our society in our time. Same thing that we noticed here, but by one generation they have departed. Now think about it. Moses spoke these words, and he was in direct correlation with God. He would come back, and he was like, all right, this is what God had said. The Word of God's been established. The book of the law, here it is in front of you. The rocks even serve as a witness. This is what you should be following. Joshua brought them to it. The elders, the, the leaders, they brought people back to the book. But the people that came after that failed. So this is where you go back to the beginning of Joshua, uh, Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It tells us a little bit about what's happening here. Now, the angel of the Lord, so this representative on behalf of God, um, went up from Gilgal to Bochum. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I'll not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of the place Bacham, that is weepers, 
and they sacrifice there to the Lord. What has happened at this point? We're not too far in, and we know what happened with Joshua. We know the generation that came up next. What decision did they make? He says, look, don't get intertangled with the things of this land. God will never break his covenant with you, but you broke your covenant with him. You didn't uphold your end of the deal. So if you don't uphold your end of the deal, what's going to happen? Nation after nation is going to come in. The land won't do what it needs to do. All these things that were serving as a witness of God taking care of you, they're actually going to be taken away. The gods of the land, they're going to be a snare to you. They're not going to produce anything good at all. Do you see what's happening here once again? From Moses to Joshua to those leaders, now as we go through the book of Judges, if you want a, a good series in morality, read the book of Judges, and you're going to find rampant immorality. It makes, you, it makes you sick to your stomach to see what these people are doing. And even some of the judges, the decisions that they made, and how God was still trying to lead them to a conclusion. But what happened is the people kept rebelling against God, and there was a problem with this. And this caused them to go into exile. Now, if you look back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, all right, I'm going to uh, look at a couple of verses here, and then we'll continue on with a, a few other points. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Um, it's starting in verse 15. Verse 1 starts with, this is what happens with all the blessings and the obedience. Starting in verse 15 is the disobedience. You know, that's where we spent a whole class talking about curses and blessings. You can look through the, just the, the paragraph breaks, and you can see things along the lines of, your enemies will no longer be defeated. If you decide to go against God's will, your enemies will take you over. You're not going to be able to fight against them anymore. Your king, he's not going to act right, and that's going to have an impact on you as a nation. All the things that belong to you, those are going to be taken away from you. I want to look at verse 52. Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 52. Talking about these nations that are going to come in and be a punishment to you. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you in all the towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you, in the siege and in the distress which your enemy shall distress you. The man who is most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to his wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left and the siege and the distress with you, with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns, the most tender and refined women among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender, will begrudge to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that, she, that, has, that comes out from her between her feet and her children whom she bears, because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly." and the siege and all the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. You read Judges, and we're about to go into the kings. And a whole series just on the kings is beneficial. But as we're thinking about the exile, there are two major times where the people of Israel, and they've broken up at this point as you go to the kings. They've broken between Israel and Judah, those that remained in Jerusalem and were trying to uphold the temple, and you got all those people that were outside of that, the northern tribes, that um, 
Jeroboam had set up these false prophets, and their their capital is now Samaria, and they had they tried to do everything, but they did it all wrong. So you have Israel and you have Judah that's still down in Jerusalem. So northern, southern. Northern's taken out before the southern, and we're about to see where when that happens. But here's the thing. When they are taken into exile, these things that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 28 come to fruition. When the nation surrounds the town, it dries up all their water source and all their food source, and what is left to eat? They start eating their own children. These are the people that were also accustomed to sacrificing their children, which is what led them into this anyways. Sadly, they had become used to burning their children, sacrificing them where it even comes where they're trying to eat them and they're going to begrudge. He says, even the most fine and tender among you, they're going to fall. When the world falls apart, when everything's taken from you, will you maintain your dependence on God or will you allow those situations to change who you are? See, what was wrong here? Their heart was not connected to God, which led them into exile, which led them to making bad decisions and everything falling apart. So here are the, the two references to, uh, to the exile. You have Israel's exile, 2 Kings chapter 17. So go and read that chapter and you'll understand what's going on here. That it was because of their idolatry that God said, all right, I'm done with you. I'm completely done. These, this other nation, the Assyrians are going to come in and they're going to take you out and the land will not be yours. And the way that they did exiles, the Assyrians, we're going to see the Babylonians did the same thing. And this is where you need to read the full chapter. The Assyrians would come in, they would take a people group and they would go and drop them out somewhere else. They would take this people group and they'd go put them in this land. They would take this people group and they'd go put them in that land. And they just switched everybody around so that you have no idea which way is up. All the things that you were used to with your religion, your home, that's all done. And all that is mentioned in Deuteronomy 28. He says, look, your home is going to be someone else's home. Your vineyard is going to be eaten up by someone else that speaks a different language than you. But you're gone and you're over here. This is so neat to me about the Word of God. When they do this mixed match and bring everybody in, the people that are in the, the land of Israel that's new to them, they start connecting the dots because there are lions and there are things that are starting to attack them. And they said, the God of this land is active. And we're terrified of him. And they started learning more about the one true God that was part of that land. I, I love these kind of connections. And you'll see that all through Second Kings chapter 17 itself, that God was going to continue to teach people. It didn't matter. He said, if you're in this land, I'm going to teach you something. The fact that all people can come to know God, that He's put provisions left and right for us to know what the Word of God is, that we have the things of the world as a witness directing us to God, but also, more importantly, His revealed Word that tells us all of these things. And then the second one was Judah's exile in 2 Kings 24-25 through by Babylon. Babylon comes in, completely eradicates them. So those are the two exiles, just you know, good chapter headings for you to know so you can go study it more, and we could spend all of our time reading it, and I would thoroughly enjoy it, but we don't have time. So I do want to go back and look at one thing here in 2 Kings chapter 21. And this is where it all comes together about the Word of God and the appreciation for it. So 2 Kings chapter 21, 7 through 9, there is someone that uh, we're familiar with, Josiah. Josiah was a well-known king. A lot of great accolades given to him. He starts ruling at eight years old. But he started noticing things that were in the kingdom that were not appropriate. They just didn't line up to what 
was happening. Now, you have to remember this about Josiah as well, that he has a bad family history. At the beginning of Deut- uh, 2 Kings chapter 21, um, hold on, let me connect myself back to this. In 2 Kings chapter 21, we learn about Manasseh, and this is leading to what we're going to see about Josiah in chapter 22, so excuse that. But here's what we know about Manasseh, this grandfather, and the decisions that he made. Focus on what we've been establishing so far, starting in verse 7. Here's what he did that just corrupted everything. In the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he sent, he set in the house which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name forever. Remember when he talked about that through the book of Deuteronomy where he says, you guys will go somewhere where my name will be. I'll show you that place is. And when you set it up, that's where all people will come to worship. This will be the place set aside we saw that Solomon dedicated the temple, and he says, God, we know that this is going to be that place that all uh, people will come here to offer sacrifices. So all the things that we saw with the feast and the, the burnt offerings and, and the correct washings and all this kind of stuff, they would come to this city. Now they come to the city and they look in there, and what's in the middle of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant is supposed to be, the presence of God is supposed to be, what's in the middle of the temple? An idol to a false god. And Manasseh set it up. This is supposed to be God's place, but who's in the place of God in their physical place, but also it tells you something about their heart, right? It's an idol. Verse 8, And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to the fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them. Remember, what is the ultimate commandment that we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 4? The ultimate commandment You do what God asks you to do. And underneath that, he's going to have statutes and rules and other commandments and all these things work together, leading us somewhere. But there's the ultimate commandment of following God, and that's going to make you want to do everything else. He said, if they will uh, follow all the things I've commanded them and according to the law that my servant Moses commanded them, connecting us back to him. But they they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. That's how bad it had gotten. They wiped out all the people in the land of Canaan because they did what was wrong. Manasseh comes in, and he is far worse than the nations they destroyed. So what do you think is going to happen then? You're going to be destroyed. So you got Manasseh as the grandfather, and then this is where we get to 2 Kings chapter 22 with Josiah. Josiah looks around, he sees all these statues, all these things, and he's, uh, all these statues, and all these things, and he says, look, this is not the way things are supposed to be. So he looks at the temple and he says, look, we've got to clean this out. And it's kind of like, we're, we're going to really, we're going to go in there and we're going to open up all the doors and we're going to clean all the filth from inside the temple. Start in verse 8, 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 8. Here's what it says. And Hilkiah, the high priest, so at least they were keeping up with the high priest they knew that was here. And to Shaphan, the secretary, he says, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Oh, he had a professor at Faulkner, and he said, God's people lost God's book in God's house. <laughs> they had no idea where it was. They didn't know what it was at all. Remember, Josiah started at eight years old. He's seeing all these things, making all these reforms. They find the book of the law in the house of God, and Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book, he tore his clothes. Now, Moses would have marched right up in there and said, what are you doing? 
Right? This, this would not have happened when Moses was around because God would tell them, you go tell these people, make them stop right now. And God did. He tried numerous times by sending prophets because remember, the people didn't want to hear the voice of the Lord. So God said, all right, I will show you the word of the Lord. We know that prophets were appearing left and right to teach people what they were to do and they would not listen. They did it in theatrical ways. They would, uh, the prophets would do a lot of these big illustrations to make kings pay attention and they wouldn't do it. Think about Elijah and Elisha in the relationship to Ahab and some of these other crooked kings. They would come in and they were considered the troublers of Israel. They didn't want to listen to them. God's like, I've told you these things over and over again, but they found the book of the law. And just by simply reading what it said, it broke his heart. He wanted to do something about it. He changes everything. Verse 11, uh, verse 12. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and uh, Ahiakim the son of Shaphan and uh, Akbar the, the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Asa the king's servant saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for Judah concerning the words of this book that he has found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. You see the appreciation and just the, we've got to do something about this. And Josiah starts making reforms. He marches into the temple even more and he says, this is all done, this is eradicated. We're not going to make this happen any longer. We're going to do what God asks. He even brings back the Passover meal that we studied about. And all this is happening in uh, 2 Kings chapter 23. And he tries to do so much good, but the people still did not want to follow. In 2 Kings chapter 23, 21 through 25, we find that he stands out differently than everybody else. In uh, verse 25 specifically, it says, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and with all his soul and with all of his mind. Do you remember those words back in Deuteronomy? If anyone will turn their heart and their soul and their mind and, and every part of their being to do these things, they'll be taken care of. Josiah is trying to do it, but there's only so much you can do by yourself. It says, with all of his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Because very shortly, they're going to be led into exile. But you get to verse 26. Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah out of all my sight, as I have removed Israel. I will cast off this city, as I have chosen Jerusalem, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. You see, the, the words of the prophets tried to teach them what they should do, and they kept disobeying and disobeying. Um, this is just a quick reference. I, I won't uh, deal with all this, but I did want to have it up. If you go back in the, the live stream and want to have this, this is a list of the prophets that spoke to Judah, that spoke to Israel before they went, even went into exile. So if you want to connect those, and I think our guys have been doing a really good job of putting up little videos where they've been working through the minor prophets, so uh, plug for them. But we have prophets, and they're trying to teach people along the way, you should follow the Word of God, but they don't. Even after the exile, we have people like uh, Ezekiel and Daniel that are trying to teach people to turn back around but they don't. They have a heart issue. And what we find out together as we progress through this I think it froze on us. And here's where we go from the old into the new. So Mark, New Testament, ready? The new covenant and a new heart. 
the heart needed to be fixed. Now, the covenant that God gave, he said, if you would just do these things, you'll be taken care of, but it's pointing to something more. There are two very vital passages for us to see. In Jeremiah chapter 31 and Ezekiel 11 and 36, it says that there will be a new covenant and a new heart will be given to man. When is the problem fixed? Through Jesus. And so for our study, getting ready for uh, next week, read Hebrews chapter 8, and you'll find a solution that is found in Jesus. When we talk about Jesus and the law, you'll see um, all these verses coming together to give us a beautiful picture of the solution that we need. So appreciate you guys.